Hi everyone, we will start in around eight minutes. So uh, thank you everyone for coming. Feel free to share the room. It will be a really interesting talk by um, the neurologist um, who is at the Veterans Hospital in Boston um, about his research on Alzheimer's and so will be really interesting and uh, I hope you'll enjoy it too and he should be here in like a few minutes so thank you. Oh, I'm pinning the paper that we will mostly discuss today on top of the room should be open access. So if you want to, in the meantime, start uh, looking at it, feel free to do so. Thank you. Actually, I'll just change to his, oh, uh, he's here. Let me see, but he clicked on the wrong there. Okay, our guest speaker is on Clubhouse right now. Just didn't find the right link. That, oh, how are you? Uh, can you hear me? Okay. Uh, yes. Can you uh, hear me? Yes, I can hear you. You know, I'm going to grab my uh, headphones. I found um, the audio is slightly better when I wear my headphones. Oh, yeah, sure. We still have like four minutes, so we're good. Thank you. Thank you, John. <laughs> um, yeah, feel free to check out Andrew's website. Um, there's like a summary of his research and so on. So um, it's really interesting. And I also shared the link into the to the chat. So later, when I switch to the paper. You still have that. So, uh, Katerina, can you hear me yep. well? Yes, perfectly. 
yeah, thanks for coming here. It's so nice of you to yes. make that time. You're yeah, happy to happy to do it. And in the meantime, I put the link to your Alzheimer's research profile, and then I'll switch to the paper once we start talking, basically. Good, Good. great. And uh, yeah, usually, uh, so I'll start by introducing you. And then usually we ask like a few interview kind of warm up, get to know you as a scientist or researcher and then yeah and then we usually switch to discussing the topic and then q and a if that's if that's good with you yes yes any way you want to do it is fine with me okay perfect happy friday i hope this glad the storm won't be bad where we are Wait, <laughs> anymore are you in new york yeah yeah, but it will be only rain and, you know, some wind, but I don't think it will be bad, so. Right. Is it raining yet? Yes, it started raining. Yeah, so we're, we're a couple hours behind you. It's supposed to start in about uh, two hours. Okay. It was actually nice weather this morning. It was quite warm and, and, and sunny, but now it's raining. Well, it could be worse. <laughs> but the tropical storm in November is so weird. Yes, this is true. And they warned me that I'm traveling next week, that the flights might be affected, but I don't think it will on Sunday anymore. I'll leave on Sunday and then I'll be back next week. So can, can I ask you what, um, I believe you're a, a professor at NYU. Can I ask what you do there? Yeah, I'm assistant professor, non-tenure track one, mm -hmm. um, and I mostly do, you know, basically apply for grants with colleagues, and mostly I work for my own company now. Oh, um, I've been, uh, I did like a mental health early diagnosis tool which is probably helpful for English speaking places, but it's probably my plan was to make it really into turn it into other languages to where, you know, there's not good health, like um, mental health mm -hmm. uh, and infrastructure. Uh, and diagnosis of what uh, disorders? Um, so we started with depression because uh, there was already published data around kind of um, the, there was a lot of raw data and data mm -hmm. there to kind of replicate mm -hmm. what people worked. But they didn't really do it, made a tool out of it, but the research was kind of there. And then uh, we transitioned to um, PTSD, actually, because kind of um, that was mostly the collaborations also we could have. And then... We had then control groups of soldiers, police officers, and firefighters without and with PTSD. And then, um, then we transitioned to uh, impulsivity because, because it's more related to addictive state tendencies. Um, and, um, and then um, we then decided to try 
resilience. So, um, and then we, we improved it a lot, the resilience tool. And that is kind of the tool I decided to make only commercially available because I didn't want people to get labeled bad when I use it to profit making because I wanted to use the profits then to do actual research um, and, you know, and drug targets and things like that. So oh, sound, sounds wonderful. Mm, thank you so much. Okay, I think we can actually start. So um, welcome everyone um, to Science Society and of course, a special welcome to Andrew. Um, and before we start, I'll give an introduction so you get to know um, him a little bit better. Um, and uh, yeah, feel, as I said, feel free to share the room. I'll also do that in a minute. And um, yeah, so welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule. We really appreciate it. And um, Andrew, um, Dr. Andrew Budson, uh, he is the chief um, of cognitive behavior neurology and associate chief of staff for education at the VA Boston healthcare system and associate director and education core leader at Boston University and Alzheimer's Disease Center. And he's also the professor of neurology at Boston University School of Medicine and a lecturer in neurology at Harvard Medical School. And um, Dr. Andrew Botson received his um, bachelor in chemistry and philosophy from Haverford College and his um, medical degree from Harvard Medical School. And then he did an internship in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, and then he was a resident and a chief resident in neurology at the Harvard Longwood program. Um, he was then a clinical fellow in behavioral neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a research fellow in psychology at Harvard University. And um, he, um, his research, his current research um, interest um, focuses mostly on understanding memory in patients with Alzheimer's disease and other brain disorders. And he uh, works um, most recently a lot with patients that have to suffer under Alzheimer's disease. And he uh, focuses on reducing false memories um, and using strategies to address that. So um, he also won a different award. So it's really a pleasure having you here. And when I read um, your paper and your work, I was really in, intrigued because it's a question I also always had in my mind about uh, what consciousness is, what defines us. So it's it's such a wonderful uh, work you you did. Um, um, before we start, as I said, we have usually a few uh, questions for our guest speakers, and the first one would be, how did you discover or how did you choose the path of doing research um, or, and also being interested in medical sciences 
Like, was it something like a childhood dream? Was it something that you discovered later on to have a passion for it? Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, sure. So I have uh, been interested in the biological basis of thinking and memory uh, really since I was in high school. And so when I went to college, I wanted to try to, you know, get all the the right sort of knowledge and skills and experience to sort of tackle uh, problems like understanding how thinking and memory actually work in the brain. And so I uh, double majored in chemistry and philosophy, as you mentioned, to try to get at sort of both ends of the, the problem. And um, I thought for a while about, you know, maybe getting a PhD in neuroscience, But neuroscience at the time that I was in college uh, was really uh, something that was involved with single cells or animal models. And it really seemed very distant and far from uh, actual thoughts and memories and consciousness and things like that. And so I thought actually um, becoming a, a medical doctor and actually working with patients would be Uh, the right way to go to try to get at these types of uh, issues. And it also uh, pulled another part of my personality, which is I, I have a strong drive to uh, make the world uh, a better place. And uh, so I thought, you know, being a doctor would be a good way uh, to do that as well. And so when I entered medical school, I knew for sure that I was going to do either psychiatry, neurology, or neurosurgery. And I ended up choosing neurology because when I would sort of hang out with psychiatrists and neurologists and neurosurgeons, it seemed to be that the neurologists were the ones who were both interested in talking about things like consciousness and also uh, were sort of approaching the issue with a certain amount of rigor that, uh, that I really liked. And so that's how I knew I wanted to be a neurologist. And then throughout my training, I began to see patients with strokes and other diseases of their brain. And I began to sort of see how these different disease processes would alter um, language or perception or awareness of space or awareness of one's own body or ability to move one's body or ability to understand speech, you know, all sorts of uh, things like that. And it <clears throat> sort of tr continued to sort of trigger my, my interest in um, disorders like consciousness and um, I ended up going to a conference in 1996 when I was, uh, I think in my last year of residency called Toward a Science of Consciousness. And I was really excited. Uh, this was uh, held in uh, University of uh, Arizona at uh, Tucson. And my takeaway from the conference is that there was no science of consciousness. Now, 
that doesn't mean there weren't a lot of good scientists that were working hard on the problem, but it just, at least to me, it did not seem like it had congealed into sort of a real bona fide uh, science, something that I could like do a, do a postdoc in and set up a lab and start doing consciousness uh, research. It just seemed to me that the field wasn't uh, quite there. But when I was at the conference, I did meet um, actually a, uh, a researcher from uh, Harvard, uh, Daniel Schachter. And I ended up doing my work with him in part because he actually wrote the section um, on consciousness in a famous textbook uh, called The Cognitive Neurosciences, uh, edited by uh, Michael Gazaniga. And uh, Schachter um, did that section of the book because he was working on distinguishing uh, conscious memory or explicit memory from unconscious memory or implicit uh, memory. And he was sort of an expert in the intersection. So it seemed to be that seemed to me that he was the, the right person to do my work with. And then I had wonderful training uh, from him and his team on how to conduct experimental psychology and cognitive neuroscience uh, experiments, particularly related to memories. And we spent a lot of time on false memories, which are memories for things that didn't actually happen, which I thought was, uh, was pretty cool. And uh, basically, you know, since that time, I've been sort of uh, applying the tools and techniques of uh, experimental psychology and cognitive neuroscience to understand thinking, memory, um, sometimes consciousness in both healthy individuals and individuals with brain uh, disorders. But this particular uh, paper uh, really came about through uh, writing a, uh, a book uh, with uh, a co-author, Elizabeth Kensinger, who is also a co-author of this paper uh, that is uh, uh, titled, the book is titled, Why We Forget and How to Remember Better, The Science Behind Memory. And it was an opportunity for me to really dive into um, exactly how memory works in a very sort of deep and uh, detailed um, um, uh, way. And one of the books that Elizabeth uh, mentioned was a book uh, by William James, uh, Principles of Psychology. And it was a, it's a classic book. It was written in 1890. And I had known about it for a lot of years. And um, uh, Elizabeth was telling me how, how good this book was. And I'm like, yeah, I, I think I, I should go ahead and, and give this book a read. And this was in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, we all, at least in the beginning of the pandemic, we seem to have a little bit of extra time because, you know, we, we couldn't do at least some parts of our usual jobs. And so uh, so I, uh, I started reading uh, Principles of Psychology. And um, uh, what I didn't know until I started to read it is it really is a book that's an inquiry into consciousness. Uh, William James was very interested in uh, consciousness, our ability to have conscious thoughts, to be aware of things, to use imagination, conscious perception. And, um, and so this really 
sort of sparked my interest in consciousness again. And I started uh, working on consciousness uh, and the nature of consciousness directly at this time. And I called up a friend of mine, uh, Ken Richmond, who uh, was a philosophy major with me at Haverford College. And, um, and so he and I would like meet every other week and talk about, um, you know, uh, consciousness and what I was reading in the book. And we decided to read some other books and papers uh, together on consciousness. And it was sort of the conjunction of uh, talking with uh, Ken and talking with Elizabeth and my own uh, personal um, uh, experience and, and uh, research and some of it, my own life experience that sort of led to coming up with this idea. So sorry, that was a little long winded, but that's sort of how uh, my interests uh, in general uh, came about and my interest specifically in this paper uh, occurred. Oh, that is perfect. I didn't even have to answer any follow up questions. You already answered all of them. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it's, it's such a beautiful story of just following the path of curiosity um, that that I find really inspiring and um, it led to, you know, to this really interesting paper. So uh, that's uh, wonderful that you pursued this and um, that, you know, we have the opportunity to pursue our curiosity as um, I, I wish more people had the chance, but I kind of think we are very lucky in that way. And yeah, um, if you want to go ahead to talk about a little bit about <clears throat> this specific sure. paper. Yeah, um, abs yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, to th think about consciousness, um, you know, our ability to be aware of ourselves, to be aware of our environment, to consciously think about, you know, moving your arms and limbs and things like that. Um, you know, questions come up such as, you know, what, what is it good for this consciousness? Why did it develop? And one of the things that the reason I think this is sort of a puzzle is if consciousness evolved and developed to have us uh, have control over our uh, thoughts and actions and decisions so that we can make the best decisions and perform the best actions, then how come consciousness is so difficult to control? Like, why is mindfulness hard? And if our actions are under our conscious control, then how come dieting is difficult or resisting other urges is difficult. And if we're conscious, whenever we're doing, say, a quote unquote complicated activity, how come we can sometimes drive a car and not be consciously aware of the last 10 miles if we're engaged in a detailed conversation with our friends? Uh, questions also come up about whether animals are conscious whether there's developmental, neurologic, or psychiatric disorders of consciousness. And then also, 
um, just even the the subjective experience of consciousness, I actually find somewhat puzzling. Uh, William James talks about a stream of consciousness. And I, I think that feels intuitively right to most of us where there are you know, events in the future that are rushing towards us. There are events going from the present to the past that are flowing away from us. And then there's this sort of swirling present like uh, around our feet of the, the now. But, you know, we know that this sort of linear metaphor of consciousness isn't really the way our brain works. The brain is actually processing massive amounts of information in parallel. So how come it feels like it's linear? William James also points out that sometimes it's confusing about whether we are consciously aware of a perception or not. And he talks about the situation where you may hear the chimes of a clock counting off the hours and not be paying any attention to it until the last chime sounds. But then you can suddenly become conscious of the prior chimes. Or perhaps an uh, analogy or an example that is even uh, closer to most of us, you may be at a cocktail party and hear your name mentioned by another conversation. And you find that you're actually able to uh, hear uh, the earlier part of that sentence. How could you be consciously aware of that earlier part of that sentence? And this is just one of many examples where consciousness is often occurring in the wrong order. And this is something that uh, has been studied experimentally, where a later stimulus affects one's perception of an earlier stimulus. These are so-called post-dictive effects. A predictive effect predicts the future. A post-dictive effect actually changes the past. And there's all sorts of examples of this in um, experimental psychology where things like this are happening. And I'll give two uh, examples. Uh, one is um, something called a chronostasis, right? It's like stopped time. And it's when we look from one part of the room to another, normally there should be a little bit of a blur if we move our eyes quickly, not our heads, but just our eyes quickly from one part of the room to another. And you know, if you were doing a video, for example, with your phone and you moved it quickly from one side of the room to another, you would see a blur, okay? But we don't experience a blur. And what actually happens is where our eyes land after we have moved them, that image is actually projected backwards in time to fill the missing uh, period of time when we should have experienced a blur. And the reason that we know it's projected backwards in time 
is if you uh, are wanting to look at a clock in your room, a clock that has a second hand on it, and you look toward that clock, you actually will experience the second lasting an extra amount of time, uh, uh, at least half a second uh, more. And so this is one uh, example. And you can try it for yourself. Uh, it, really, it really happens. Another example that uh, I think most of us have experienced is actually watching a motion picture. And when you watch a motion picture that was actually shot on film, so this would be like the, the motion pictures like in the 70s, 80s, and, and 90s, before everything was uh, digitalized. And we have the perceptual apparatus in our brains uh, and eyes to actually perceive the individual frames. And if we see any one of the individual frames for the amount of time it's shown on the screen, we have no difficulty whatsoever in perceiving that frame. But when we see the frames in quick succession, what happens is the later frames actually alter what we see earlier in time, such that our brains infer a smooth, continuous motion. So instead of seeing a bunch of static images in quick succession, we actually see continuous uh, motion. And this is another mystery of consciousness as to why does that occur. Uh, another uh, thing that has been noticed uh, experimentally is that in this experiment that was done by Benjamin uh, Labette, where he asked people to move their wrist, flex their wrist whenever they felt like it. And he put um, EEG electrodes on their head to monitor their brain activity. And then he had people use a special clock to determine when they made that decision to flex their wrist. What he actually found from the EEG electrodes is the EEG electrodes were actually uh, showing that the person was getting ready to fire their muscles before they made that conscious decision. Lebet did another experiment where he actually showed that if you stimulate the finger or you stimulate the part of the brain where sensations of the finger occur, the first thing he noticed is it took about 500 milliseconds of stimulation, half a second of stimulation for the stimulation to register. And believe it or not, that's actually a long time in brain time, uh, uh, 500, uh, 500 milliseconds. The other thing that he found is that the stimulus of the finger was actually referred backwards in time, such that it appeared that the stimulus of the finger occurred earlier. So how is that possible that these sort of uh, sensations or perceptions are being referred backwards in time. And when we dive into the timing, it brings up all of these different types of uh, problems that once we understand, and this has been replicated in lots of experiments, that sensations take about half a second for them to be consciously uh, perceived. And when we make a motor action, 
and a motor decision, it takes about 350 milliseconds for that decision to be translated into an action when we're doing it consciously. Consciousness is clearly too slow for it to be in any way directly involved in improvisational music, in sports, in martial arts, and other human activities that are uh, occurring uh, quickly. We also know from some patients that there can be impaired conscious perception with intact action. So for example, people with blind sight due to a stroke, for example, may be unable to see in part of their visual field. And you say, you know, where is the spot of light? And they say, you know, I, I don't know, I can't see it. And you say, well, I know you can't see it, but why don't you just, just guess, just guess where you think it is. And people are able to guess with a remarkable degree of, of, of accuracy. And so when you take all these things together, you know, the question is, you know, if consciousness is often occurring after perceptions, decisions, and actions, if it's too slow to be participating in many real-time uh, events, and if judgments and actions can occur without conscious perception, and if consciousness is actually difficult to control, it's like, well, what in the world is consciousness actually doing? How does it contribute to our success as human beings? And it was from all of this and you know, doing my, uh, my work with my colleagues that I realized that we could answer all of these different sort of mysteries or unexplained explanations about consciousness if we simply think about consciousness as a memory system. So if consciousness developed essentially to allow encoding, consolidation, and retrieval of memories to take place, all of this would make sense. So it's like, why, instead of parallel processing, why do we experience uh, uh, a unity of perception? Well, because that's how we need to remember it. And why, you know, how can consciousness being a memory, how can that be helpful in explaining the utility of consciousness? And this has to do with the fact that uh, back in 2007, uh, I, I mentioned, uh, actually, I mentioned that I did my postdoctoral fellowship with this guy, uh, Daniel Schachter. And that was from about 1997 to 2000. Well, in 2007, uh, Schachter and colleagues, along with some other researchers that happened to come across this at the same time, they, they had this realization that um, episodic memory, our, our explicit conscious autobiographical memory, did not develop to remember events verbatim in time. Okay? So it didn't develop to be able to remember exactly what happened to you in the past. But they argued, and I think it's totally correct, that the reason this type of memory, episodic memory, uh, developed is to allow us to flexibly and creatively combine and rearrange memories of prior events 
to help us plan for the future. And so this is what I think consciousness does. Consciousness is part of this memory system that allows us to combine the sensory information coming in with our prior experience and factual knowledge to plan for the future. And if you think about it in that way, it's extremely powerful. So let me give you uh, an example. So let's say that you're um, going home after work and you're doing a little shortcut and you're cutting through a neighbor's yard and you hear this barking and that uh, uh, bark through sensory memory, it goes into your working memory, the part of your uh, mind that is able to actively keep in mind and manipulate information. And that bark then goes off to your episodic memory and retrieves a memory of when last week that very same dog ran at you and chased you off the property. Now, once you have all of this information in mind, including the memory, it's not very difficult to imagine the future, right? The dog is probably going to chase you off the property again. Now, so where does all the consciousness comes in? Well, we argue that you need consciousness to be aware of seeing the dog for your retrieval of the memory of the dog and for your to imagine the future. Consciousness is required for all those different uh, pieces. Now, there are other types of memory like uh, conditioning that doesn't need to have conscious awareness. But whenever the stimulus or the setting are not similar enough to trigger conditioning, that's when you really need uh, this uh, system. Now, you might say, okay, well, fine. So maybe that explains how consciousness and memory are related. But we can use consciousness to do all sorts of things like problem solving and stuff like that. Well, the way that I think problem solving evolved is because once you can use your memories to imagine the future, now you can maybe imagine two different futures. So for example, you're hungry and you can remember a time of when you picked some berries outside of a cave and it made a delicious lunch. And you think, oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do. But then you remember this other time when you were by that same cave and a bear uh, uh, came out of the cave and started to chase you. And the problem solving comes in when you have these two different memories in mind. And now you're going to work to flexibly, creatively combine the information that you have to try to make one future occur and not the other future. Now you might say, well, well, where does language comes in? You know, because a lot of our, our consciousness is involved with talking and, and thinking and words. And I would say, well, you know, once you have uh, concepts uh, like berries and bears, and you're trying to communicate that, to somebody else so that maybe if the two of you work together, you'll be able to get the berries and avoid the bear. You know, that's how language developed. 
So maybe by now I've convinced you that, you know, okay, so consciousness is uh, part of this sort of explicit memory system, part of episodic memory and things like that. But how does that really help us understand consciousness? How does that help us with any of those problems that I brought up in the beginning? And my answer is that if consciousness evolved as part of our memory system that will help us to flexibly, creatively combine and and, uh, uh, manipulate memories to plan for future action, there's no reason that consciousness needs to operate in real time. There's no reason that consciousness cannot function with a small delay. And for that reason, you know, I suddenly understood that our perception of the world is actually a memory. So conscious perception is actually remembering a sensation. But not only are we remembering this sensation as sort of pure, raw sensory information, we're actually remembering it as a combination or a mashup between these bottom-up sensory processes and these top-down episodic and semantic memory uh, processes. And once we understand that our conscious perceptions is this mashup that is a memory, then there's no problem with things occurring in the wrong order because we're always just remembering things. So all those times when the later uh, event is affecting the earlier event, it's all not a problem. You know, it's not a problem uh, with the chronostasis when uh, we move our eyes and things are projected backwards in time because, yeah, our perception is just simply a memory. So it's no, uh, no problem. It's no problem that sensations are delayed 500 milliseconds and referred backwards in time. That's what memory does. It refers things backwards in time. Now, what about decisions and actions? Well, we argue that the you who decides and acts is actually unconscious. So your conscious decisions and conscious actions are actually memories of those unconscious decisions and actions. And once we understand that, it's not a problem that the motor cortex of the brain is starting to fire first, and then we have the decision to move. It's also no problem that uh, all sorts of sports and improvisational music and martial arts can be too fast for Uh, consciousness to be perceiving and acting. That's okay. Uh, It's unconscious processes that are perceiving and acting, and then we consciously remember those perceptions and actions. Now, does that mean we never use our conscious minds to make decisions and guide our actions? And we argue, no, not at all. That's not what we're saying. Uh, I think that There are many times when 
things can be done unconsciously, just like if you're driving on a routine highway, uh, you can drive while you're talking with a friend and focus your conscious attention on your conversation. But there's other times, like if you're driving in a downpour, that you absolutely positively need to have all of your conscious energy and focus on your driving. And this distinction between these uh, unconscious processes in sort of uh, simple, easy situations and needing conscious processes in more complicated uh, situations, uh, we pull on a distinction that Kahneman and Tversky made famous. They were two psychologists that actually won the Nobel Prize for uh, economics uh, based on this theory that system one is the unconscious brain processes that perceive, make decisions and acts when things are sort of simple and straightforward. And system two is what uh, I would call the conscious mind and the conscious memory system. It provides this additional layer of information that can be used whenever decisions and actions are difficult and they require additional <clears throat> work, logical thought, uh, things like that. And once we understand that, then all of a sudden it's not so problematic why mindfulness is hard because consciousness did not develop for us to be in control of actions and decisions. Consciousness developed uh, to be part of our memory system whenever we need to make slow, logical, deliberative uh, processes. So <clears throat> the next thing I want to talk about is um, some of the, the metaphors that uh, I think all of us from at least time to time uh, experience and seem right, and also metaphors that have been uh, portrayed through uh, philosophy, literature, and uh, film. And one of these metaphors is uh, so-called the Cartesian theater. And Descartes never really talked about uh, Cartesian uh, theater. Uh, Daniel Dennett uh, uh, talked about, about this, but he, he used it as a metaphor because of the way that Descartes would sort of describe uh, himself you know, thinking, therefore he is, you know, as sort of like a little homunculus, you know, sitting somewhere in the brain, uh, watching our, uh, the world go by, you know, through our eyes and things like that. And I don't know what your own intuitive experience is, but I sometimes feel uh, like that. And I also sometimes feel uh, like the metaphor that Plato uses in the Republic of watching shadows on a wall and thinking that they're reality when they're not really reality. Or if you prefer a more modern metaphor, the metaphor of the movie, The Matrix, where um, people are actually plugged into a computer and what they think is reality is actually they're performing in a uh, digital world. And I, I think all of these metaphors resonate with us because they're all telling us a little bit of the truth, which is we don't consciously participate in the world directly, 
we're actually one step removed. We're actually remembering our perceptions, decisions, and actions. And I want to introduce here one other type of metaphor that I think will, will help you to understand like what I'm talking about here when I'm talking about us not sort of deciding and acting uh, directly. And that is of a horse and a rider. So I think about the horse as our unconscious brain processes. And I think about the rider as our conscious mind. And the first thing I want to say is like, you know, the rider, your conscious mind is absolutely important for doing any type of, you know, long, uh, long reaching, uh, deliberative, logical goal. So for example, if you want this horse to go from Carson City to San Francisco, that horse needs a rider to help it to get there, right? It's not going to get there on its own. But on the other hand, you don't need a rider to tell a horse where to put its hooves to walk across a rocky field or jump over a small wall. The horse knows how to do that all by itself. And while the rider can absolutely tell the horse where uh, the rider would like the horse to go, at the end of the day, it is the horse that decides whether it's going to go down that narrow gully or it's going to walk up that mountain or it's going to trot across the plains, right? The horse is ultimately deciding. And that's sort of how I feel it works. Yes, our conscious mind can absolutely direct our unconscious brain processes. But at the end of the day, the unconscious brain processes decide whether they're going to listen to the conscious mind or not. Now, how come this rider has this good information? Why should the horse bother listening to the rider at all? And we talk about how, well, the rider has these really cool sunglasses that can look out at the world, which is like through uh, sensory memory, although there is a built-in delay. They can look out at the world, but there's a 500 millisecond delay. They can access prior autobiographical information. That's through episodic memory. Access prior information about facts. That's semantic memory. And also keep information on the screen of the sunglasses and manipulate it. That's working memory. Or use a combination of all those things to flexibly, creatively imagine the future and future uh, possible uh, outcomes. And that's, of course, what this system does. But the last thing I want to say about this metaphor is the images that the rider sees come from the horse. And that's why mindfulness is hard. The horse decides which images the rider sees because ultimately, we argue the way consciousness developed is it developed as a tool the unconscious brain is using <clears throat> to be able to predict the future. And if you think once again about 
this sort of Cartesian theater, you can sort of imagine that your conscious mind is actually able to lay different types of scenarios and future possibilities out in front of you in your imagination. And you can sort of move these around, change them, decide which one you're going to go for, just like you're a movie director moving around scenes on a storyboard. And I will say very briefly that we argued in the book, in on the book in the paper, that the cerebral cortex, uh, the outer layer of the brain, is the neuroanatomical basis for uh, consciousness. Uh, this is based on both uh, experimental uh, psychology work and cognitive neuroscience work, but it's also based on my experience as a clinician uh, looking at patients with a variety of different brain uh, diseases. We argue that there's no one area of the cortex which directs consciousness or is key for consciousness. And again, this is because in my experience, there's no single cortical area, unilateral or bilateral, that leads people to be unconscious. We actually think it's likely that a structure like the thalamus is the hub that is actually controlling and switching back different uh, types or aspects of uh, consciousness. So the idea is that your visual consciousness, your consciousness of a visual image is in one part of the brain in your occipital lobes, in the superior temporal sulcus is the auditory awareness of uh, uh, consciousness, that these different types or different aspects of consciousness are all occurring in different uh, regions. And then the thing I'm just going to end with is a couple of implications. So if we're correct that the key neuroanatomical structure for consciousness is the cerebral cortex, well, all mammals and in fact all vertebrates have either a cortex or something analogous to it. So we argue that all of them are conscious. And I will say that doesn't mean that animals without uh, a backbone are unconscious. It just means our theory doesn't say anything one way or another. So are octopuses conscious? Absolutely. They appear to be conscious by the way they behave. Our theory doesn't really say one thing uh, or the other about them. We think they're neurologic disorders of consciousness, which include strokes, Alzheimer's and other cortical dementias. We think delirium is a, a loss of conscious awareness. Uh, migranous phenomenon, like people that have scintillating scotomas, is a, a disruption of consciousness. Epilepsy is a disruption of consciousness. We think psych there are psychiatric disorders of consciousness, including dissociative disorders and schizophrenia. My own son has a severe autism. He's nonverbal. He learns through operant conditioning or how it's called uh, by his teachers, applied behavior analysis. I think autism is a disorder of uh, consciousness. And I think this explains you know, why it's difficult to control our behavior. Now, some people might be saying, well, well, who are you anyways? Are you 
if are you just your conscious mind? And if so, am I saying that people don't have control over their own actions? And my answer is not at all. You are both your conscious mind and your unconscious brain uh, processes. So you're the sum of these. And in fact, because it's your unconscious brain processes that determine your decisions and actions much more directly, that is actually the part of yourself that most people are interacting with on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. Now, um, can the conscious mind influence decisions and actions? Again, absolutely yes. All we need to do is spend a minute or two thinking about whatever decision and action we want to make, and we are getting the input from our conscious mind into that decision and action. I still do think at the end of the day, it's the, the, the unconscious brain processes that decide. Again, if it was as simply as easy as making up your mind, dieting would be simple for everyone, but it's just not like that. I also want to say that, you know, as a, a, both a clinician and an educator, I absolutely think people can change both their conscious mind and their unconscious brain processes when uh, they want to or they need to. And this is very consistent with cognitive behavioral therapy. So what's the key if you want to make changes to your mind or your brain? I actually think beginning to learn to control your thoughts is the start. And that's why I'm a big fan of mindfulness in learning to control your thoughts. And once you begin to learn to control your thoughts, then you can use your thoughts to make changes in your life. I also think that we can tap in to our unconscious brain more than most of us do to help us do better in everything from sports and music to art, insights, science, and creative endeavors. So I'm going to stop there and I, I would love to have some discussion. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful talk. You covered so many aspects of um, also questions I had along the lines and then also people asked in the chat about you pointed towards free will and um and all these big questions um um you you really covered um that so well and explained your model so well and when i was reading your paper and i'll just ask this question and give everyone else an opportunity because we might um depends on how much time we'll have then later on um my, my thought was this also describes really well especially in the current situation where people seem to have very different perspectives on situations that happen you know in our private lives also in bigger you know in our big political lives or um we have we seem to have very different memories of um, situations and this description with, you know, that the horse decides which, which parts of the situations it will point mm -hmm. you to mm -hmm. and then makes this 
memory out of it, those mosaics of different inputs is is so interesting because that really explains very elegantly this discrepancy we have in different people experiencing the same situation. Very yes. yes, I just want to reiterate uh, what you just said because I would say the, the sort of ordinary view would be if two people perceive the same event, clearly the perception will be the same, but maybe they'll remember it differently. But now that we understand that perception is a memory and we understand that that perceptual memory is a mashup between the raw sensory information and their prior memories and experience, then we actually learn that the actual perception of two different people for the same event, their perception is almost certainly going to be different. So it's not just that they remember it differently, they actually perceive it differently. Yeah, that is so important to know um, and to be aware of, I think, in everyday life and, and bigger events. and. I would say then the most accurate view and retrospective is to take as many observers as you can to build this bigger picture or what, what would you think of yes, yes. machines to do that? Do we need to, to outsource it and let machines record everything? But then again, when we look at the recording, different people will, will perceive different things probably. Yeah, well, in fact, it has been studied that when groups of people uh, uh, work to uh, write down what they have witnessed uh, uh, of different events, if they all write down the information separately and then they pool their information together, they actually will have a more accurate uh, depiction of what happens than if any one individual uh, did it uh, themselves. That's been shown. Yeah, that's that's really. Thank you for sharing that. And um, if we would be, it's it's really important to put that message out there, don't you think? Because you know we sometimes tend to. Um, to read maliciousness into, you know, lying. Traditionally, you know, people jump to lying, uh, like accusations of lying and so on, really fast. But if we would have that, oh, like that awareness in everyone, basically, do you think that would be really helpful for society and, you know, Oh, uh, no, no, uh, uh, of course, uh, of course I do. I think, you, you know, it, this is one of a number of scientific discoveries that should make us be humble and realize that, you know, just because we think we know the truth, we may be wrong. And uh, I, so I totally agree. We shouldn't be jumping to accuse people. Well, thank you. And I'll pass the microphone first to Dr. Shah and then um, I think uh, 
Lanyakush and Jonathan, you're next, and then just in PTR order, maybe after Dr. Shah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Andrew. That was a really fascinating, I mean, research that you shared with us. I'm, uh, my question is back to the, I mean, conditions such as PTSD, and we know the role of the, for example, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And we know that in uh, some of these patients, they have a, a disruption in prediction, and it's just influencing for taking the risk in the future. However, based upon whatever you said, and we know about the predictive neuronal adaptation, which we know that whatever happened in between the neural, they have a maximum transferring of the information as well as, as well as the adaptation. So I was just wondering, what is your opinion based upon your research and by considering this area and PTSD that I just explained? Well, I think what's interesting about PTSD is there's both the sort of conscious aspect of, you know, often sort of reliving time traveling, you know, back to the uh, event that caused the trauma. But then there's also the unconscious, um, I'll use the word conditioning, that occurred uh, due to the trauma that can trigger uh, uh, fear, uh, anxiety, uh, other types of emotions that uh, you know are, may or may not be uh, related to any uh, sort of conscious experience that's going on at the time. So you know I'm a, a neurologist and not a psychiatrist and don't consider myself an expert on PTSD, but I do think that focusing on both the conscious and the unconscious aspects of PTSD, perhaps through cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, would be the way to go. Thank you. And uh, do you support this hypothesis that some uh, it can be, for example, uh, I mean, by considering the prediction, uh, minimization by single neuron can be the basic of the consciousness? Uh, so you, you're asking, what are my thoughts on what's the, the, the sort of answer to the hard problem? How does a collection of cells uh, form our own sort of experience of uh, awareness of perceptions and things like that. So my guess, and I, I use that word on purpose, my guess is that it is a property that comes out of a multi-layered cortex. And I uh, suspect it's just more complicated than any single cell, but I think it's something that needs multiple cells in multiple cortical layers to uh, to achieve. That's my best guess. Yeah, thank you for those questions. And um, Lania Kush, uh, if you want to ask your question. Hi, thank you, Katarina. Um, this has been really interesting, Andrew. Thank you so much. Um, I, I was just wondering, you, staying with the analogy of horse and rider, 
is there such a thing as a centaur? Um, I guess what I'm yeah, saying yeah, is yeah, 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 yeah. No, that that's very that's very interesting. Um, I I guess um, you know I would say that uh, not not the answer is not in the way that I understand uh, how conscious and unconscious processes work together. So from where so from what you gathered, do you believe um, that conscious and the unconscious are evolutionary locked in that state? You know, I, I think we can all work to, you know, do a better job of uh, controlling our unconscious brain. I mean, that's why you can, you know, you can work at doing things like having a better control over your behavior uh, for, uh, you know, for whatever reason, um, you can, uh, certainly work at bringing unconscious processes to conscious awareness. You can work at, uh, being a better observer of yourself. You can work on trying to observe, uh, other people in ways that your unconscious might have detected, but you didn't consciously detect such as uh, pay attention to their body language or even their pupil dilation or, or things like that. So I think that you can sort of work at it and that maybe some people are intuitively better at doing these things than others. But I, I, I just, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think if, if somebody has one without the other, we would end up thinking it's a disorder. If they weren't acting as separate faculties, you mean? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting thought experiment that you have asked me. And, um, you know, at, at the moment, that that's my best answer, but I'll continue to, to think about it. And, and I, I'd love to have your thoughts about it as well. Yeah, I'll let everyone um, ask questions. Okay. But yeah, we'd love to chat maybe about it sometime. Cheers. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that interesting question. Uh, Jonathan, do you want to ask your question? Um, yeah, maybe he's currently away from his um, app. Um, and I'm not sure if that's your name, but um, yeah, <laughs> sorry if I said it wrong. Yeah, I just changed my name with, uh, to Arabic, so it's Nada. Um, uh, good evening, everyone, and uh, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, thank you for Dr. Andrew. Uh, my question was about uh, the unconscious, and uh, like I want uh, what, what you think about the unconscious and unconscious uh, mind research. Um, I noticed uh, that uh, you talked about it already, sorry about the noise, um, uh, on the example you gave about the unconscious, unconscious mind, about the horse, and I really want to know more. Uh, what do you think about unconscious? Thank you. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I do think that most of us, because 
we sort of think of ourselves as conscious being, like when we think about, you know, who am I? We, you know, we, we think like Descartes thinks, like cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. But in fact, uh, I do think that it's our unconscious brain processes that determine our character, our personality, uh, what we do like 95% of the, the time. And, and again, this is not, I, I want to just be clear. I, I don't think I'm the first person to say this. Kahneman and Tversky talked about that most of the time we use system one processes for most things. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell also talked about this in his book, Blink, that you know we make fast, fast unconscious processes uh, that are making decisions and perceiving things, you know, most of um, the time. And so I do think that, you know, more work needs to be done at, you know, understanding um, our unconscious. And I do think that uh, there's a lot of uh, potential there uh, that can be tapped into. And one way that we all can tap into our unconscious is to use our sleep to perhaps answer uh, questions. And it's been studied experimentally. And if you go to sleep with a problem on your mind, you are more likely to come up with the answer in the morning than number one, if you didn't go, if you didn't decide con consciously that you want to ask that question, or if it was the same amount of time, say eight hours uh, across when you're awake instead of being asleep. So um, uh, it's, a, it's a great comment and, and question, and I think there's a lot more we can do with the unconscious. Thank you for the answer, and uh, I really want to know more about unconscious, and uh, especially that um, whenever we talk about unconscious, they, someone we find someone just say, oh, it's not scientific, and you can't uh, uh, confirm anything. And so, yeah, it's just like that, and we stop discussion, so, yeah. Well, well you can, you can refer them to my my paper i will i will yeah um, thank you doctor hello everyone if i may my name is oleg um i think eric was waiting and Charles. sure sure um yeah. i'm sorry yeah, thank wait. you we just go sure, and sure, pick sure. our order thank you oh, okay, or okay i think okay. actually john john i think you were next thank hello you. oh let Are me you? know yeah thank you can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Hey. Yeah. Hi, uh, Dr. Andrew. See, uh, when you talk about uh, you believe uh, 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 autism is also ki uh, a kind of uh, consciousness uh, disorder. Yeah. Um, can you uh, elaborate that a little yeah. bit more? Yes. Yeah. I I'm glad you, you brought that up, uh, John. The, uh, you, you know, so as I, as I, I think I mentioned it briefly. So my son has autism and autism um, is on a spectrum. There's a lot of different um, uh, aspects of autism. There's a lot of different severities of autism. And I do want to make it very clear that my comment is only 
relevant for people like my son with severe classic canner autism, people who um, cannot talk using words, people who uh, learn with applied behavior uh, analysis and, and things like that. And I don't want it in any way to say my son is completely unconscious, but just that he has a disorder that I think affects his ability to use this conscious memory system to be able to control his behaviors and his actions. And unfortunately, my son uh, engages in um, sometimes self-injurious behaviors or aggressive behaviors because he's used those behaviors in the past and he was able to get the attention or whatever it was that he uh, needed. And it's, it's very difficult to, um, you know, to get around that. Um, there are all sorts of people that have different forms of autism who I'm sure don't have a disorder of, uh, of consciousness. But I do think there's some situations where uh, people are quite uh, severe and have a certain type of autism that uh, I do see aspects of consciousness and memory impaired. Uh, individuals like my son cannot learn in the normal way. They don't form semantic memories in the normal, typical way. They don't form language in the normal, typical way. So that's all I'm trying to say there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I always thought, uh, think the uh, autism is because something is really occupying some kind of thoughts is occupying the patient's mind. And so let them, they're busy to dealing with this uh, thoughts instead of dealing with the environment. But, well, <laughs> probably it's a little bit different. But anyway, yeah, thank you so much. Yes, no problem. Hey, Eric, how are you? Oh, thank you, John, for that question. That was uh, really and, 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 and Eric, you're, you, this is a repeat, a, a repeat uh, performance for, uh, for you. I, I, hope, I hope it wasn't too similar to the last time uh, uh, we, we spoke. Uh, no, no, definitely. Uh, I'm always down to have a review session. I find myself reviewing things in the era of like YouTube, watch things maybe two or three times, and it kind of get get you get a different feel for things uh, after after a certain while. I'm reminded of the uh, famous Simpsons line: "Lisa needs braces, dental plan." And today, when you were uh, speaking and discussing, you know, the idea that the neocortex there's no one region that's kind mm -hmm. of uh, controlling all of these um, zones, that's something that always appealed to me because I looked at something like uh, the IBM Synapse uh, project um, where they had asynchronous circuit design and everything's just flowing all the time. It's really more of a matter of, uh, I guess, orbits or differential equations, at least from the modeling perspective that I had. So it was uh, nice to see that, uh, you know, in terms of being frustrated sometimes with the status quo, with the dogma, you can challenge and come out on top. So 
just an interesting observation from yeah. getting that today. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Shiraz, did you have a question? Uh, yes, Katrina, thank you. Hi, Professor Andrew. My question to you is, how do you see, how do you see ADHD in the context of your you know, hypothesis? Because you, know, you mentioned that uh, this consciousness is something that is related to episodic memory. And I don't have problems with episodic memory a lot. Like I don't remember anything from my childhood. And I'm just 22 years old. And if and you also mentioned in your paper that uh, this consciousness arose and uh, you know as as something that was also important in solving abstract problems, problem solving, and so on. And those things are also complicated, compromised in ADHD. So in a sense, you know, from my personal experience, I think that consciousness that is experienced in ADHD is qualitatively different from other you know, from the new neurotypical consciousness. Like I can understand that that most people are communicating through a non-verbal, non-conscious processes, which I do not understand. Like are they, they are speaking a language that I do not understand. Their non-verbal cues are very different and I have to really pay attention to what they mean and I have to apply low logic and I have to apply my own intuitions to know what they are doing because the because the nature of our unconscious is very different as far as I can tell. And there are also, there's a lot of evidence for that. You know, my experience of time, it appears to me is very different from how neurotypicals experience time. Like I have, I don't have a sense for time. It's like, it's, it doesn't even exist. I, I like to say, but most neurotypicals have a very acute sense of time and they are able to do things on time and so on. And there's also there's also a theory from Carl Ung who said that besides a personal unconscious, there's also something called collective unconscious, and these are the memories in your, you know, in your brain which are there even before you're born. So what do you think about that collective unconscious, which is not related to your personal experience, but which are archetypes, mental templates that you are born with and with that lead you to you yes. know, to have some kind yes, of experience. I'm, I'm familiar with, uh, with uh, Jung. Um, so let me begin by saying, so um, I, I, I think what you were describing in terms of yourself, so one thing you, you mentioned is that you have trouble remembering your childhood. And that's not necessarily uh, abnormal. It all depends a, a little bit on you know, um, what, what you were doing, you know, how uh, memorable uh, things were. I, I think that, you know, everybody is a little bit different in terms of, you know, what details they can bring up from uh, different periods of their life. But not remembering, you know, a lot of your childhood is not necessarily uh, ab abnormal. Uh, we actually have a, uh, a book, Elizabeth Kensinger and I, I think I mentioned it, um, called Why We Forget and How to Remember Better, The Science Behind Memory. And we talk about why people forget different things and why it may be difficult to remember things from long ago and, and that it's not necessarily abnormal. So I don't want you to feel that there's something wrong with you just because you have trouble remembering uh, uh, your childhood. Uh, the other thing that uh, I think you described actually quite eloquently 
is some of the difficulties with uh, 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 autism spectrum uh, disorder. I, I wasn't clear whether you were saying uh, uh, attention deficit disorder uh, or autism spectrum disorder, but I think what you described. No, no, I, I was describing ADHD behavior. Yeah, there are so, also some theories. There are also some theories which say that ADHD also has deficits in theory of mind, for example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what you described about having difficulty in being able to detect the sort of non-verbal, uh, non-linguistic parts of communication, uh, in my mind, that's not really consistent with ADHD. At least, not how I understand it. Uh, but it's more consistent with autism spectrum uh, disorder. But either way, uh, I certainly um, uh, ag agree that, you know, um, there are many times that people have difficulty in perceiving these sort of uh, nonverbal unconscious cues and that you can train yourself, like it sounds like you've done, to be able to uh, bring these unconscious cues to conscious awareness, and I think that's a that's a terrific thing to do, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. Now, in terms of um, uh, Carl Jung and uh, these uh, ideas of unconscious uh, archetypes, uh, I, I do, you know, I, I I think it makes sense in uh, the way that when we listen to a story, we want the protagonists to win. We want them to overcome obstacles. We, you know, we root in general for the underdog. You know, I do think that there are um, things that are built into our brains because presumably uh, people that sort of have a narrative uh, a story in certain ways, we're more likely to overcome obstacles, to persevere, to survive. And maybe you have to have something in, in, in intuitively built in to believe that even when you're faced with seemingly, um, you know, impossible odds, that you still have a chance of succeeding. So uh, I, that certainly resonates with me. Uh, well, I have a question. Uh, you know, you have you done any twin studies where uh, you know, since since those who are twins, they have a very identical genetic code. How does that uh, affect their unconscious? Like, no. should they have similar? No, um, I haven't. I haven't done anything uh, like that. That's an interesting idea. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you for it. <clears throat> that really interesting um, discussion. Yeah, and, and I'll just say I have about, um, I, I had only blocked off an hour, so I, I have about five more minutes. I, I apologize. Oh, I you don't need to. I, I was about yeah. to to check with you um, how much time we have, so I'm glad you, you said that. So I guess, I think, Oleg, uh, you, you have the last question. I know you waited very patiently, so here you go. Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for this wonderful room. Um, you know, I had a couple of questions, but I, I'll, I'll take, take down to one. And uh, what is fascinating is that, you know, for example, shock therapy that people like Wim Hof uses, you know, for, uh, and he has a, a very extensive 
uh, stats as far as like people with PTSD and different severe uh, disorders, uh, you know, have a good result of healing. And I'd be curious to see like uh, your point of view on that. And another thing is that, uh, you know, we're talking about the past, you know, like our conscious mind is like somewhat like a few milliseconds past, but there's also a great line of thought of, you know, of, 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 uh, of quantum thoughts, actually, at the observer effect, so that, you know, the force and the writer, they somewhat, you know, observe their journey and they may have a particular intent of, on a specific aspect of this journey and no doubt that will affect the result so yeah that that would be uh my question i, I you know i'd be curious what do you think of that thank you sure sure so in terms of uh ect uh, ect is very um interesting in particular because it does tend to produce uh temporary uh, uh memory uh, uh deficits and some people believe that the production of the memory deficits is actually important for the relieving of depression. Um, so it, it's an interesting idea to, to think of. Are you actually changing people's consciousness uh, by, you know, altering, altering their memory? And is that in some way cause them to you know, have a change in their mood. It's, it's very interesting. I don't, I don't have an answer. Again, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a neurologist. So I, it's just not my area of expertise. And then in terms of your, um, your second uh, question, uh, can you just say it one more time? Just to remind me of it. The, sec the second question is, uh, yes. you know, Sam, uh, the, you know, line of thought of like people like Joe Dispenza, you know, of uh, quantum thoughts. Oh, 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 oh yes, yes, the, yes, the right. The consciousness right, right, right. creates being, the future reality. Being observer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, there, there's no doubt that, um, that um, you know, if people are self-conscious and self-reflective, that um, it's going to alter their behavior. But I would say in general, when people are self-aware, uh, it's nothing but a good thing. I think that it gives people the biggest opportunities to change and grow for the better when people are observing their, uh, their behavior. So I think it, uh, it, it can be a very good thing most of the time. Well, thank you so much um, for the question, Oleg. And of course, thank you so much, Andrew, for this wonderful talk and um, taking so much time to answering questions. Already have requests to invite you back again. So maybe next year, one day. Yeah, well, well, when my uh, my new book's coming out February 1st. So if that... Oh, yeah, perfect. You know, if, if, if you'd like to have me back in February, I'd love to come back and, and oh, talk about the book. Yes, that would be perfect. Yes, please. That's uh, wonderful news. So uh, congratulations. And um, yeah, thank you. This was wonderful. Such a great discussion. We really appreciate the time you took. And um, yeah. 
I hope we, we hear each other back in February. Uh, okay. Everyone Very knows. good. Okay. Take, take, take care. Thanks. Bye. And enjoy Bye. your weekend. And thank you everyone for coming for this very uh, vivid discussion also in the chat, all the contributions. We really appreciate that. It makes the discussion so interesting because I would maybe just ask very you know questions that go what goes on in my mind so we have a much bigger picture of this topic when people participate uh, so that's really wonderful there were so many great questions that i wouldn't have asked so thank you for that and enjoy your weekend and we'll have two rooms next week because i will be traveling so we have less rooms um follow the club check it out and um yeah happy weekend everyone thank you I'll close the room in three, two, one. Thank you, everyone. Bye.